the growth that we've had and response we've had to Chia Smash really speaks to the fact that I think consumers and grocery store buyers have really been looking for innovation in this category. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I'm really happy today to have two guests with me, Anna Peck and Steve Ford, who are the co-founders of Chia Smash, which is a really good, better for you brand of jam. But I'm going to let these guys tell you a little bit more about it. So welcome to the podcast today. I'm so happy to have you guys. Thanks so much for having us, Christy. We're excited to be here and chatting with you. Awesome. I'm excited too. So why don't we start by you guys just first telling us what Chia Smash is and how it came to be. And then we'll talk a little bit about your backgrounds and how you wound up as founders of this brand. That sounds great. I can kick it off. So Chia Smash is a line of superfood jams. It's made with real simple ingredients like fruit, chia seeds, and sweetened naturally with dates has no added sugar. It's super low in natural sugar, just three to four grams versus eight to 15 in the rest of the category. Packed with superfoods like chia and dates is keto and paleo friendly. And then we also use imperfect fruits and are certified upcycled. Amazing. Amazing. I want to know a little bit about the fact, well, there's a lot of things I want to know, but talk a little bit about the category in general, because I feel like one of the things that got me really excited about Chia Smash is that this category has been so sleepy for so long and you guys are really doing something to disrupt it. And it may not feel like, you know, as sexy as some things that you might hear about, but this feels like a disruption to a category that really needs it. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely a super sleepy and overlooked category, but really I think there's a lot of exciting opportunity there. It's, you know, a big category, eight and a half billion dollars globally, 1.6 here in the US, you know, a household staple, super high household penetration rate. And it's really dominated by a selection of these kind of old school legacy brands that have been around for generations. And the category just has not kept up with the innovation that's you know, frankly, transformed the rest of the grocery store. Um, so, you know, what started as a little home recipe, you know, then went on to become a side hustle in a business and we can get more into that. But I think the growth that we've had and response we've had to Chia Smash really speaks to the fact that I think consumers and grocery store buyers have really been looking for innovation in this category, wanting something that, you know, meets the nutritional profile that consumers are demanding today you know, having this modern, bold, engaging brand that speaks to today's consumers. And even just looking, you know, at the category, it's, you know, sleepy on the outset, but actually there is a lot of exciting growth. You know, the category as a whole steadily grows, but taking a look at, you know, the subset of natural, better for you brands within it, there's a lot of exciting movement happening. What inspired you guys to do this particular thing? Like, I know that you have a lot of interesting background that is going to be interesting for people to hear about because it's not your typical path to founders and CPG, but what made you want to do this particular thing versus all the other things you could have launched? Yeah. And I'll just say, Steve, definitely jump in if you have comments to 
anything before or anything after interrupt. One thing to add on to the category, there's a interesting and startling fact about the standard of identity for jams, jellies, and preserves where the products have to require 55% or greater sugar by weight in the formulation to be called a jam, jelly, or preserve, hence why we call Chia Smash a superfood jam as a differentiator. So when you look at the brands within a category, it's one of two things. It's the standard, you know, generation over generation, fruit, pectin, and a whole bunch of sugar recipe. And usually it's like 75% sugar by weight when you factor in the natural sugar coming from the fruit, plus all the sugar that gets added in. Or if you're looking at products that are trying to be quote unquote healthy within the category, which are touting a zero grams of sugar, five, 10 calories per serving nutrition fact panel, you pan down to the ingredient statement and you see stevia and xylitol and erythritol and sucralose and a whole bunch of preservatives and thickeners. So Chia Smash solves that problem by giving the great nutrition fact panel, three to four grams of sugar, all coming naturally from fruit with a really good ingredient deck that you feel good about putting into your body or your family's body. It's fruit and superfoods. So in the jams and jellies that are zero sugar, they can still be jams and jellies, even with the artificial sweeteners? There's a lot of folks that call it a low sugar, no sugar added jam. And the statement of identity is kind of like loosely followed in the category. It's more just people, you know, it's product association and use case association, but technically anything that doesn't meet that 55% or greater sugar by weight needs to be called a fruit spread. It's just kind of widely danced around the category. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Okay. So let's go back to the question of what made you guys do this versus all the other things that you could possibly launch? Yeah, well, I'd say it wasn't like a super intentional, like, you know, I want to start or we want to start a business, like, what can we do? It started more from like a personal place evolving into a side hustle before it really became the business that it is today. I'm a really healthy eater. I'm originally from Australia, always been very into, you know, healthy eating ingredients. And after college, I'd had some health issues and really transformed my diet to help kind of work through them and had started cooking a lot more because of that. And actually this, you know, chia jam recipe was just something I made for myself amongst a variety of other things. I was looking for, you know, a low sugar, simple, natural ingredient option. And I was putting it on my yogurt, my overnight oats. And from there, I just kind of got to thinking you know, as a consumer of all these really amazing products that have launched over the past few years across many other categories, you know, why hasn't anyone done anything here? At the time, Steve and I were working together. We were already a couple. And, you know, we just started thinking, you know, maybe this could be a product in the marketplace. Why don't we just test it out? We had full-time jobs and we just launched it as a little side hustle nights and weekends, you know, doing everything ourselves from making it in a commercial kitchen, distributing it to local stores, doing all the demos, the selling, all of it. So really, it never intended to be what it is today at first. And then over time, as we gain traction, both from consumers and grocery stores, it really evolved into, wow, there is, you know, a market for this. And, you know, we can build something out of this. So it then became, you know, a serious full-time business. So you guys weren't like 
some entrepreneurs I've talked to, like, I have to do this. It's my calling and I need to figure out what it is. You did it because you needed it and wanted it and then liked it and then thought there was an opportunity. Yeah. I think that we're both probably quite entrepreneurial and Steve definitely has, you know, played in the entrepreneur space before and I'll let him speak to that. And I think it was definitely something that really intrigued me personally and felt like, you know, oh, that would be super awesome to be able to create something myself, be, you know, my own boss. (laughs) But it wasn't like this very intentional decision, I would say. Yeah. Interesting. Steve, talk about what made you feel entrepreneurial. Like, did you do another brand before this or have you started up businesses before? Nothing quite that formal, but I grew up in a small town on the coast of Maine and there were your standard tourism driven summer jobs, busing tables or valeting cars at little local restaurants and found that quite boring and uninspiring. So me and my best friend, my childhood best friend, when we were 17 years old, put together funding from some like local entrepreneurs and and business owners and started a takeaway seafood business where we would sell fresh caught lobster rolls and crab rolls and poultry from a farm nearby and burgers, grass-fed beef from a farm nearby, circulate revenues and just have a fun, steady summer thing to run on college summer breaks. And we sold that after we graduated when we were in our young 20s. So I've always just had the entrepreneurial itch. And I'm a very operations and process driven person. I'm an industrial engineer by training. And I worked at Amazon in fulfillment leadership, and then Blue Apron in supply chain network optimization, and then process improvement in our fulfillment centers. So when Anna and I crossed paths at Blue Apron, we were working on a meal kit for Costco. I was commercializing it and Anna was ideating the product, what it would be, the pricing, the go-to-market strategy, et cetera. So we then started dating and Anna was making all these incredible recipes and I was coaching CrossFit on the weekends and really big into paleo. So these recipes with clean, real ingredients and great nutritionals were right up my alley. And, you know, we just got to thinking like, you have this really great skill set over here. I, on the other side of the Venn diagram, without any overlap, have this great operational skill set over here. Let's just try to, you know, get the nuts and bolts figured out and test this in our little great New York market, which is full of amazing natural grocery stores, et cetera. So share the entrepreneurial itch over to Anna's side. And it's just been so fulfilling since those early days. So it's interesting. I mean, I want to get into this a little bit. You guys are not your typical entrepreneurs who are, you know, running around selling your products by screaming and talking about how awesome you are and how awesome it is, but it is awesome. And your background is very different. So you talked a little bit about really understanding the operational side, which I think is one of the things that most entrepreneurs trip over because that's not their background. They generally fall in love with an idea and feel the need to bring it to life. So that's kind of cool. I think when you think about starting a company, not having that as a hurdle because you really, really understand it is really interesting and feels pretty compelling. Can you talk a little bit about what the experience has been like? And is there anything that you've learned from starting a business from that side versus I'm going to make something and I'm not sure what it is yet, but I want to make something really big? I think from just, yeah, the building strong operational fundamentals out of the gates. It's funny, we had all these tools early on that were overly sophisticated for making 24 jars of jam Mm -hmm. in a four hour shift in the commercial kitchen that 
had a demand plan that had inputs from the little, you know, five, 10 natural grocers that we were selling to around New York City on subway lines that fed into raw materials planning and making sure that our procurement was buttoned up and we had materials on time to produce the quantities necessary where anyone else would have probably just muscled through that and gone right. to Restaurant Depot and picked up some berries and said, you know, I'll make this much tonight. And if I'm running out, I'll make some more next weekend. Yes. But having that in our DNA has made the scale up a lot more efficient from a time and time value standpoint. We've been able to push back a lot of the heavy SGNA buildup with hiring a big team and you know bringing in sophisticated ERP, MRP software early on. We still run everything out of spreadsheets because we have really, really good spreadsheets that we've built and iterated on from day one. So yeah, that's been a big asset for us, especially as a business that's playing, as you noted, in, you know, we're not in RTD beverage or salty snacks. So it's not like the obvious choice to go dump venture capital dollars into. So having just really efficient operations and margins, and you can't just, you know, design great margins out of the gates. Some of that just comes with scale on raw material ordering and tolling price breaks, et cetera. But at least we have a really sophisticated and strong understanding of the path to those really strong margins. And we can push off high SG&A costs and, and overhead costs because we have awesome efficiencies in our day-to-day SNOP process. That's just a team of two, literally. Anna's one half of SNOP and I'm the other half of it, but we can run it in a very robust and scalable way, which has been amazing. I think that's a really important thing to just pause and talk about because that's not typical. Typically, when someone has to scale up, that's when the oh shit moment comes and people are like, oh my God, this isn't going to be profitable for a long, long time because we didn't think of it that way at the beginning. And I think it's really cool that you guys have thought that through to whatever degree. I mean, obviously there are things that happen, but to whatever degree that you can, knowing that going in is huge. It feels huge to me. Yeah. It's not like we had that sophisticated foresight from day one. A lot of this was built as we went, but we were just making a strong effort to keep it really buttoned up and and have good clarity into cash flow planning, et cetera. But now that we're launching new SKUs and some exciting new innovation, different packaging formats and just different items that will use Chia Smash as a hero ingredient and delicious, tasty stuff to come this next year. Now with those tools and the structure in place, we can build margin accretive products right out of the gates and have an understanding of day one, what it's going to cost us in the cogs yeah. and margin structure. And at various points of scale based on points of distribution and doors, what that scales to and then plan cash flow around that. But the point being, we have a really amazing low cost set of tools that we've developed along the way to get us there. That's amazing. I want to hear more about the product. Talk more about Chia Smash and what actually is in it. And what you mean when you say superfoods and just give us a little bit more of a sense of what it is so that all the listeners really know and can put a visual to it. Yeah. So we describe it as a superfood jam, although as we touched on, technically not a jam. And it's made with all these super delicious, good few ingredients. So you have the fruit or whatever fruit it is, the chia seeds, which help provide like the consistency of the jam. They provide some of that gel texture. They're also super high in omega-3s, protein and fiber and considered, you know, a superfood. 
We sweeten naturally with dates, which are a really great natural sweetener, super high in important antioxidants, vitamins, and minerals. And because they're, you know, technically a fruit, they don't have added sugar. They just add to the natural sugar. And then we use a little bit of lemon juice and some fruit pectin. And, you know, a lot of our consumers eat our product in, you know, the traditional way that you would use a regular jam and jelly, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for your kid or yourself or, you know, your jelly toast. But what's really exciting is that because Chia Smash has a very kind of like fruit forward, natural, bright flavor, because we don't have all this kind of sugar and sweetness to mask the fruit. And because it has like a slightly different texture than, you know, a regular jam that you would kind of knife, it really lends itself well to a variety of use cases that take kind of jams and jellies outside of the traditional mold of what you would think they are and how you use them. So a lot of our customers are, you know, putting them on their yogurts or having it on their oatmeal or adding it to their smoothies, baking with it, getting like really creative. And it's, you know, showing up not just at breakfast, but you know, lunch, dinner, dessert, snacks, people eating it by the spoon. So it's really kind of exciting to see the product like evolve as more consumers find it and they find their own ways of using it. Yeah. That's so cool. I mean, I would have never thought of using, I mean, I don't think people use jams and jellies and smoothies and it's really cool that you could do that with this because you could imagine the flavor it would add and the little hint of sweetness, but not sweet, sweet. When you think about who your ideal target audience is, like who's the biggest opportunity for you guys? Is it families with kids or is it people who are using things like the things you said later in your list, like smoothies and yogurts and stuff like that? Yeah. So we have kind of like three main sets of customers and it's kind of interesting. Not everyone is who we initially thought from the onset when we started, A big customer group for us is moms or parents, moms and dads who are feeding Chia Smash to their little kids, you know, making the healthier versions of the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I hear from moms a lot through particularly our social media platforms. And, you know, there's been all these amazing healthy nut butters across every type of nut out there but they've been kind of waiting for a better few jelly. There's been a lot of guilt around feeding this super sugar-packed product to their kids. So that's a big customer for us. And they're really loyal and, you know, they're going through jars quickly. And we actually just bought out a new grape flavor, which really is exciting for that set Mm -hmm. of customers with grape being the classic peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Yeah. And then the older generation, kind of like, the baby boomers and up are actually the biggest consumers of the category today. You know, they've been eating jams and jellies for generations. They're putting it on, you know, their toast in the morning. They typically, they're very routine driven. They often have like health preference or health issues, a lot of diabetic, pre-diabetic heart conditions. So they're really needing a product that fits with their dietary needs. And they're very routine driven. You know, they're eating the jelly toast or the chia smash on their toast or yogurt every single day. And, you know, our best customers eat a jar on average every 10 days, which is super fast for jam. And then the third group is kind of that group I was talking to before, the younger consumer, the millennials, Gen Zs. And they're the ones who have really dropped off from this category traditionally because it just doesn't meet, you know, their health preferences or the way that they're eating. They're not eating you know, 
toast and peanut butter to jelly sandwiches. They're looking for the low sugar, the simple ingredients, that brand that really kind of speaks to their values. And they're the ones that are getting super creative in, you know, putting it on a delicious looking yogurt bowl or smoothie bowl or adding it to their overnight oats or making some really creative baked good using chia smash. And that's definitely a harder consumer for us to capture because they're not naturally generally going to, you know, the jam shelf in the grocery store. So there's more work to capture them. But once we do, they're super engaged and get super creative with the product and, you know, they're sharing it on social media and sharing it with their friends. So that's a customer set that we're super excited about continuing to kind of speak to and get Chia Smash in front of. Interesting. So it's really a wide group, but it sounds like you're, I don't want to say, yeah, I do want to say low hanging fruit. It sounds like it's the older people who are already eating jams and then the moms with kids who want them to eat that, but don't want them to eat it. Yeah, that's cool. And then the other ones, I mean, I think the other, I think it's interesting because it feels like there's some educating needed on how else you can use it versus just in a a sandwich or a place where there are carbs, where people are so anti-carb to begin with. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, it feels like you have a lot of opportunities, which also is also scary because then where do you put your dollars and who do you market to? And I'm sure you have all those questions and things that you're, you're kind of mulling over now as you think about how to move forward. Yeah. And in the early days of the business, like any emerging brand in its earliest stages, being really sharp with marketing dollars, being able to quickly measure spend, test and iterate and adjust course, you know, an interest of capital efficiency has been huge for us. So mm-hmm. mainly we've unlocked a, a ton of great distribution. 2022 was a massive year for us growing from 300 to 2,300 doors with wow. eight divisions of Kroger, four regions of Whole Foods, Sprouts nationally, and a bunch of awesome regional independent grocery chains. So making sure we're properly supporting that distribution footprint with mm-hmm. efficient trade marketing has been super important. So testing different frequencies and depths of discounts, EDLP strategies versus high lows, just your basic fundamentals on shelf to make sure it's working where you have points of distribution. But then that leaves the challenge of, hey, there's this big opportunity in that customer base that isn't going down the aisle. How do you capture them through shopper marketing programs or brand awareness programs, influencer programs that are driving them into the store to start looking for Chia Smash versus those folks naturally going down the aisle? So one exciting thing that we're doing that is friendly on a marketing budget standpoint is we brought out a line of single serve sachet packets of Chia Smash that look just like the Justin's and RX Bar, et cetera, nut butters packets, same form factor. And this is first of its kind in our category. The only thing that exists right now are those little thimble cups of, you know, glass jars of Bone Mama or the little tearaway top smuckers that you find in diners, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Nothing that can be merged in a really nice eye-catching way in the category in the store. So we're putting these next door in the nut butter set where there is much more innovation and there is, you know, that young modern foodie is going and Mm -hmm. looking for, you know, X, Y, and Z, keto, different type of nut, et cetera, butters. And they'll find next to the single serve sachets of the nut butters, chia smash in a single serve format, try it, and then graduate up to the jar and get brought back into our categories. We can drive some, and that's really exciting for retailers because we can show a data story around 
driving incremental dollars to the category for that young yeah. generation that's not engaging today. Does that exist yet or is that coming soon? That's rolling out an exciting retailer this summer. We just commercialized the product and started showing it off at Expo and had amazing feedback. And then there's also exciting uh, e-com and food service customers coming soon on that. That's so exciting. You know, it's so interesting. I didn't even think about nut butters when you guys were talking, but yeah, why hasn't anyone done it with jams yet? I mean, everyone, like a bazillion alternative nut butters exist now. And (laughs) that's so great. I think it just speaks to the complacency of the incumbents in the category, the vast market share and lack of innovation. They're kind of sitting in a happy place on. So we're excited to shake it up from that regard, but it's also pretty difficult to commercialize and without getting into trade secrets and a sophisticated co-manufacturing system and infrastructure system that we've put in place. It's hard to get a shelf-stable jam in a pouch Mm -hmm. on shelf reliably. And we figured out a way to do that. That's fantastic. I'm so happy to hear that. Talk about fundraising. Have you guys raised capital? I mean, I know it's so hard. You get distribution. It's so exciting. And then you have to support it somehow. And that's expensive. So you don't lose it. So talk about that. Have you raised capital yet? Are you in the middle of it or planning to do it? Yeah, so we did a small kind of pre-seed friends and family round at the beginning of 2021. So after we'd you know, had the product in our local market, understood that there was, you know, a place for it. And we felt ready to start kind of scaling the business. We did that small pre-seed, friends and family, a few angels. And then now we're currently raising our seed round. And, you know, as Steve mentioned before, more of a sleepy overlooked category, not one where, you know, funds or investors are necessary flocking. But I think that has really allowed us to really find the right investors who have a lot of conviction on this opportunity, really believe in the brand, the category opportunity. So, you know, silver lining, pros and cons to every scenario, but definitely, you know, a challenging time to be raising for anyone. And I know there's a lot of brands out there trying to do it right now. So yeah, we are in progress. You know, I think there are a lot of brands trying to raise and it is hard, but one of the things I hear from investors more than anything, even more than don't over-distribute or over-innovate, which is one of the things, but the other one is don't come to market with a product that doesn't have a unique reason for being or meets a market need that no one's, and you guys do, you really do. Like you're doing something that nobody has done in a category that is tremendously big and also I feel like the nut butters have proven that it's possible and that there will be people who adopt. So that's, I mean, I think it's really an exciting time actually for you guys. I mean, the capital is going to loosen up at some point, hopefully sooner than later. But I do think that it's interesting because you actually have something that's very different and unique. And that's, you know, I mean, we all know what we saw at Expo. There was a lot of the same and lots and lots and lots of it. And so I think seeing things that are really different in categories that may not be as exciting, although I pretty exciting. Definitely exciting for parents to be able to have that kind of alternative. And then when you think about all the alternate uses for it that you talked about, I think there's some really great stuff happening, some really incredible potential. Yeah, no, I mean, we definitely think so. And I think we really have, you know, the numbers behind it to prove it both from, you know, a category data perspective and just, you know, a business perspective, like as Steve mentioned, we're a team of two and we've done a lot as a team of two and built the distribution and, you know, hitting the metrics that we need to be and be very capital efficient along the way. So it's just continuing to push on, find and develop relationships with the right people that 
we're aligned with and that kind of believe in what we're doing. But yeah. Where do you want to be in two years, five years? Like, what do you want to happen with this brand? And is this the beginning of bigger things? Or is this like you guys are going to be focused in the jam category? So the broad platform vision that we're building to is superfood jams and jam-packed snacks. So we have some exciting new categories that we'll be entering, again, with that mentality around operating fundamentals and making sure that everything is margin accretive and being cognizant of overextending into how many category managers that we're dealing and sets within the store that we're dealing with, as well as the supply chain around it, not going into like frozen or refrigerated staying ambient for, you know, supply chain rationale. So that's something that we've really buttoned up as, you know, figuring out what makes sense and not just spraying chia smash everywhere. Cause you can put jam in a lot of things. You can put, you know, a yummy fruit filling in a lot of things, but making sure it makes sense from a cost perspective and a team and time value perspective as we are going to continue to need to be capitally efficient and then ending up with a product platform that could be vertically integrated to a strategic acquirer down the line. And we're trying to make sure that we end with a product portfolio that is tightly buttoned up with room to extend further, but shows that Chia Smash can be used as a hero ingredient in other high velocity snack confectionery items, what have you that is both accretive to top line and bottom line revenue and to the hero jar line. So a company that we look to as a source of inspiration often is Justin and what he did with the nut butters, then putting them into sachets to drive trial, and then finally going into cups and pretzel dips, et cetera, but not going too far there such that Hormel looked at the opportunity and said, you've way overextended. There's nowhere else for me to go. And this is going to be very hard to realize efficiencies on by vertically integrating it into my portfolio. So that's where we see the brand going is superfood jams and jam-packed snacks. Chia Smash is always going to be their hero product line, but demonstrate that there's really exciting opportunities to use that as a hero ingredient in other tasty ways. And I think something that not necessarily unique, but applicable for our category and certainly not every category that a lot of you know emerging CPG players are in right now is that gems and jellies are very globally relevant. So I think there's a lot of opportunity over the next kind of two to five years to take it outside of the US. We actually have a launch into the UK later this year and then you know Europe beyond that. So really excited about the other places that we can kind of grow into beyond just the States, which is obviously a very huge market. But yeah, I think something where we're definitely looking to expand globally, you know, not go everywhere at once, you know, start with the UK and and Europe and and go from there. Yeah, something we're also excited about. How um, it's all exciting and it's all incredible. I mean, you guys have thought through so many, you have thought through many, many steps ahead. And that's really, I think, interesting for investors and interesting for distributors, because you guys aren't sort of out there with like, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but this is so great. What do we do with it? You already have so many thoughts. It feels like you've taken a few steps down the road in your minds, at least on what could happen, what the risks are. What are the biggest challenges that you guys are feeling like you're facing right now? So we definitely do have lofty goals around where we can take it from product expansion and innovation and just distribution, both domestically and globally. And then also, you know, increasing the use case 
of products in this category via our unique product experience. And it's a lot to go after. So I think this comes back to having really strong business fundamentals that are efficient to run from a day-to-day order entry to cash process and stuff that we can outsource or insource with hires at the right point with the right funding and capital behind it. So something that we're just really trying to do is demonstrate where it can go in a very clear way with thoughtful unit economics and the math and forecasting behind that. And that's a strong suit for us. But it's definitely challenging to show it in action and have real market data without overextending from a like points of distribution perspective or a number of SKUs perspective. And it's, you know, a bit of a catch-22 at times. It's like, hey, I'm really interested in this, but I want to see the data before I invest. But then also, mm-hmm. hey, you're overextending yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm a little cautious on investing with how fast you're trying to go. So yeah. figuring out that right balance is critical and having really strong operating fundamentals allows us to do that with less friction. Yeah. I always ask founders to talk about lessons they've learned in hopes of helping other people maybe avoid some things that they might, you know, some pitfalls or some things you guys already sort of went through, or just in general, like what keeps you going? You guys have thought through a lot of things, but I also know that it's hard and you're not saying how hard it is, but I know it's really hard because you're starting something from scratch. You're doing something no one has really done. And so there must be days where you are just like, is this all worth it? Like, is it worth it in the end? How do you get through those? Yeah, I mean, definitely a lot of lessons we've learned along the way. And I'll say that Steve and I have done a lot, but we also have like a lot of really amazing people around us, whether it's, you know, advisors that we're engaging with, you know, on a week to week or month to month basis, or investors, a lot of our investors are kind of like industry veterans, or founders who've done this whole journey before built the business and are on the other side. And so really leaning on them and putting yourself out there and not being afraid to share when things go wrong or you need help or you're looking for, you know, X type of person. And so I think asking for help and and building people around you that can support you, you know, both through the very like tactical challenges, but also the more, I guess, like qualitative challenges of growing a business, you know, building a team, not that Steve and I have necessarily got there yet, you know, being a leader, all of that. And I think, yeah, and we have a lot of great advisors and investors who support us a lot. And then I think a lesson or, you know, what keeps me going personally, I found the whole startup entrepreneurial journey, like extremely stressful. I take things, you know, quite personally when things go wrong, I, you know, really beat yourself up or, you know, you don't get quite to where you wanted or it's just the whole thing is very stressful. And I think everyone says it, you know, there's so many ups and downs and the highs are so high and the lows are so low, but they truly are. So having a way to manage that, and I think it's different for everyone, you know, maybe it's, you know, getting in a workout every day or closing your laptop at 10 or having a therapy session once a week or whatever it is, or just having a friend that you can vent with, but making sure that you're cognizant of that and managing that because, I mean, it's like no other job that I've ever had before. So did you say closing your laptop at 10 as if that was early? (laughs) (laughs) 
Maybe. <laughs> it's true though. It's nonstop, right? You're always thinking about it. It's hard to stop. Yeah. It's relentless. Yep. Coming at it from the ops hat on, I would say word of advice is get as in the weeds as you can early on with your manufacturing, with your fulfillment, your 3PL partners, et cetera. Go to the plants, be at the runs, every single run as often as they'll have you. Build really strong relationships. Relationships go a long way in the business. It's easy to point at cost opportunities and efficiencies of order price breaks on raw materials and say, start buying more, you know, like we can open up X margin points if you do this, or, you know, let's decrease our batch size, et cetera. But you might not understand the implications on the plant, how they operate, their physical space, their comfort level and the way they like to run their other customers. So that's something that I try to do a lot. And, you know, if you can start out making the product by hand, you'll learn a lot about it. We then, before we moved to co-packing, went down to Rutgers, which has an amazing food innovation plant. Cornell has one as well. And you can make your product in a commercial setting, build up your batch size from small to medium to large and understand that really well before you take it into a co-packing setting. We didn't do it as neatly as that. We went from commercial kitchen to co-packer back to Rutgers to figure it out after we had some nightmarish runs at our first co-packer. That's so so Uh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And same with something as simple as 3PL and putting together Amazon orders, putting together D2C orders, putting together wholesale pallet build orders, go there and see how their operation is set up. Be a partner to them in finding ways to improve the process but do it without a, you know, demanding and instructing mindset, ask them why things are being done certain ways. My background is in lean manufacturing and the big tenant of lean manufacturing is go see and ask why. The concept of you can look at the data and see a problem and think of a solution from a conference room, but you need to go to the place of the operation, go to the floor, sit, stand and watch and ask why things are being done a certain way if you think it should be done some other way. Yep. And in your ideas and being a partner and improving those processes will stick a lot better by building those relationships and seeing it in person. That's awesome. You know, no one has mentioned, I know about Cornell's Innovation Center, but I didn't know you could do what you said. And I didn't know about Rutgers. And that's really cool for people to know, because I think people go the route that you just talked about going and don't even know that there's another way to go or they rent their own commercial kitchen or, but I think that what you talked about is interesting because it could save you a lot of headaches, it seems like, and you could learn Mm. a lot without, yeah. And it's the right environment for learning because they aren't incentivized to get units out the door because you're paying them on units out the door. You're paying them a fixed rate to use the plant from a purely R&D perspective. And if you have a great run in amazing yields in perfect quality, that's great. But there's no pressure to go one unit out the door to 10,000 units out the door on a shift. Yeah, that's a really cool thing for people to know. Awesome tip. I want to ask you guys one more thing. And I'm going to ask you both the same question. So whoever goes first isn't going to have as much time to think about it. But what's the best part about being a founder and an entrepreneur? And what's the worst? I think for me, the best part, it's really rewarding to like, see very tangibly the result of the work that you've done. I think depending on where you've worked before, that isn't always the case, especially if it's like a bigger company and you're kind of Mm -hmm. one small team within it. So 
really being able to create and then see what you create and see that succeed or, you know, maybe not succeed and have to pivot. That's really rewarding. And I also really love how like every day is different. You know, (laughs) I always start my week with a to-do list, but, you know, by the end of the week, you know, maybe I've got like half of that list done, but all these other exciting things have come up and I'm jumping between different things. And that also does create challenges, but I feel like you're guaranteed to never get bored. Um, (laughs) So I think that's really great. I think on the flip side though, you know, one of the hardest things is that, especially if you're a super small lean team, like Steve and I, like we're a full-time team of two. We wear a lot of hats and there are a lot of shitty jobs that you have to do building a company. Like, and you know, those jobs may not be like the same for everyone. Maybe it's, you know, at first I did all the accounting and I was closing the books every month and doing the very tedious tasks around inventory counts and COGS calculations and all this like really nitty gritty, frankly, what I found to be boring work, but it's like, that's super critical and someone has to do that. Or, you know, reviewing chargeback deductions from our distributors and disputing them. Like that is like painfully boring and frustrating, but like, you have to do it because it's either me or it's Steve. So I think, yeah, that's one of the downsides. Yeah. I I would say the worst part about it is it's really challenging to decouple the downs of the business from you as a person and your contributions and incorrect decisions. But that's just the nature of it. You're not going to make the right decision 100% of the time. So like Anna talked about being able to have mechanisms to cope with that and let go of it and kind of have a mindset of being present and dwelling on a failure is not helpful. Just feeling the pain of the failure. It is helpful to reflect on it and retro it and figure out the root cause and the solution to that. But after you have that, there's no need to sit there and let the failure weigh on you. Yeah. So I think that's the worst part of it. The best part of it, I think, is creating like net new solutions to things, creating new systems and not having to follow a playbook. And there are certain things that are like table stakes and and you have to do. They're just part of the backbone of a business. But then there's other things that you can do that are unique, proprietary. It's that sense of creation versus just purely execution that is really, really addictive. And then sharing that knowledge with others and seeing it kind of like proliferate into other businesses, seeing other people adopt practices that you have. And, you know, that could be just a little change on the line at a copac or a little internal meeting that you set that is like a super effective little Wednesday huddle where we do X, Y, and Z as a team that you share with others. But yeah, discovering new tactics and then sharing them and learning those from others and being part of like founder communities like Startup CPG and Naturally and so on and so forth are great for sharing and learning those types of things. That's awesome. You guys are awesome. I love what you're doing. I think it's so exciting and I have no doubt that you're going to get what you need to scale. I have no doubt. It's awesome. Do you have anything else you want to add before we wrap up? I really appreciate you guys taking so much time for this, but is there anything else you want to add that we didn't talk about? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. I did want to, I don't know if it like fits anywhere, but we're a full-time team of two, but we do have like a part-time sales 
support who is awesome. So I want to like give credit that we do have a lot of awesome partners around us that help Steve and I do everything ourselves. (laughs) One other soundbite that I'll add that might fit to the earlier, you know, Chia Smash and why this product came to be and how we kind of stumbled into it. From the earliest days, it was very easy to sell Chia Smash in to independent little grocery stores and the big chains. I think it's easier than it can be in other really hyper-competitive categories where it's hard to differentiate and you have to have a specific, you know, unique ingredient, proprietary adaptogen to stand out in a super crowded space. You know, we have a very straightforward, simple product. It's no sugar added in its real ingredients. It's very widely sought after mainstream attributes. And that's great. And it's really easy to understand for buyers. And we were hearing from the earliest days, like, hey, this is great. This solves a problem for my customers in a really simple, easy to understand way. But as we've grown, being able to tell a data story around that has been really important for us for selling to more sophisticated retail partners or investors, et cetera. And we've been able to gather data around the category performance and a subset of Chia Smash plus four other kind of healthy products in the category. And are seeing a Kager in the healthy set of 14% relative to a healthy category Kager of 4%. So, you know, something that qualitatively stuck out to us early on of, yes, bring this in, my customers are going to love it, is now starting to shape up in a really nice data story around it. Awesome. So great. Well, thank you guys so much for your time. This is fantastic. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Christy. It was great to chat with you. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.